Hey everybody, this is Heather from Crimezilla, and you're listening to the Crimezilla podcast, the show that explains true crime in a deeper light. And for the people who love true crime, this is your podcast. Hey, how's it going? Hope everyone's having a good day. I currently have a new kitten. Actually, I have two new kittens, and they are about 11 weeks old, and they are fucking nuts, y'all. Like, running all over my computer, trying to attack my microphone, so if all of a sudden my microphone goes, like, kerplunk, it's probably because one of them tried to rip it out of my hands. So, yeah, my house has gotten a little bit crazy with two kids and two dogs and... One adopted dog because I'm watching my mom's dog while she's working. And now two kittens. It's been fun. Oh, and we still have Storm, our older cat. But he's more of an outside and he's kind of getting grumpy ass in his old age. So, yeah. Life is crazy, you guys. So, getting on with today, my sister, funny story, so... I did the 23andMe DNA kit. I don't know if anybody else has done it, but um, I wasn't really expecting anything out of it. I wanted to kind of see because my mom's adopted and um, we don't know much about like what we are. Like we know we're a Heinz 57, but we don't know of what. (laughs) So we wanted to, so I got me one and my boyfriend one and um, so we did it and it's cool because when you log on, you could do like your family tree or whatever. And it shows you all like your connections of people who have done the 23andMe DNA thing as well. And um, so it was probably like a couple weeks after I did my 23andMe and I was on there and it was like stepsister. And I was like, what the fuck? Stepsister? Like, I thought, like, I know that there's a lot of us from my dad because he was a whore, but I didn't realize that there was another sibling out there that I had no idea even existed. And she is older than me by a month, you guys. I thought I was the oldest. She took that crown from me, but that's okay because I love her. And it was just funny because her bio was like, Searching for any information about my biological dad, who I don't know, blah, 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 blah. So I connected her with my aunt and they got in touch. And now, yeah, so most of my siblings from my dad's side live in Vancouver area and Abbotsford area, which is what brings me to this case. Uh, My sister told me about it and I honestly... Did not even know about it until she told me. And I was like, holy shit. This happened in Abbotsford, BC. Like, I had no idea. So, yeah, this was suggested to me by my sister. So, thank you. Um, I I don't know if anybody else has heard of Terry Driver. Um, He was a Canadian murderer who attacked two teenage girls in Abbotsford and he taunted police with letters and phone calls until he was captured. So yeah, so we're going to be talking about Terry Driver today. 
uh, disclosure, like the rest of my podcast will be, um, horrifying details, they're horrible. So, but if you like true crime and you like details, then obviously that's why you're listening to this podcast. So, um, yeah, let's get into it, you guys. Thanks, sis. Okay, you guys, so Terry Driver was a Canadian murderer who attacked two teenage girls with a baseball bat horrifically, like, horrifically. He spent his time taunting police in Abbotsford, B.C. with letters and phone calls. He is also known as the Abbotsford Killer. On October 13th, 1995, 16-year-old Missy Cockrell and Tanya Smith were walking to a party when Driver broke through the hedges nearby with a baseball bat in hand. That would be so scary. Driver offered the girls to go through the bush, directed the girls to go through the bushes and take off all their clothes. While Tanya cooperated, Misty attempted to fight for her life, grabbing the bat and hitting Driver across the back as he prepared to rape Tanya. And I'm going to read her um her statement after all this but yeah it's it's scary driver did eventually overpower misty and beat and beat her horrifically he um yeah he beat her to a pulp misty did regain consciousness in the parking lot laying face down behind some bushes she was bleeding and confused, but when she was able to sit up, she t- took a look around, but her friend Tanya was not there. She walked herself to the Abbotsford Hospital emergency room where she was able to tell the doctors and nurses what happened. Thinking that the man might be still hanging around, a man rushed outside to search the area, but he found nothing, no traces of driver or Tanya. Misty was immediately rushed into surgery for her severe skull fracture, said to be a fist-sized hole in her head from the blows. So if you, I'm doing it right now, if you clench your fist, like that, my hands are pretty small and that's still huge. Can you imagine having that in the, in the back of your head, walking to a hospital, telling people what just happened to you I would be in tears crying I don't even think that I would have been able to get up she had the blows to her head a broken arm and a broken finger but she survived later that morning Tanya's badly beaten body was found at a fishing site on the Veter River in the water where she drowned so the coroner's office reported that she was still alive when she was thrown in the river, but she probably wouldn't have survived because the beating that she received of from her attacker. So you can imagine that 
that poor girl was beaten to shit. In an interview with Times Chronicle in the Okanagan, Misty recalls that night that she will never forget. The 35-year-old single mother of two told the Chronicle that she prefers to be known as a survivor rather than a victim and refuses to let that experience define her. She even calls herself lucky. And kudos, and I'm throwing my fists up for you, girl. You are one strong mama. Like, you fought, and you refused to let him win, which is amazing. Her story starts and she says, I was walking to a party at my boyfriend's house with my best friend, Tanya, late at night. We were both 16 years old and we were talking about the superstitions that surround Friday the 13th. I made the inappropriate joke, as I often do, that watch some guy is going to jump out of the bushes and try and rape us. We laughed it off and continued walking. They stopped when they heard a man's voice behind them asking if they wanted to party, but quickly dismissed him and began to walk away. When he asked again, they turned. That was when they noticed the aluminum baseball bat he held in his hand. They stood, frozen in fear, and drivers shoved them into the nearby hedges that lined the hospital's intensive care unit. He ordered the girls to remove their clothes, and they complied. Cockrell began to beg for their lives, promising to keep the encounter a secret. She debated running for help, but was afraid to leave her friend behind. She decided to try and stall him by faking an asthma attack, but driver called her bluff. He just looked at me and laughed. He said if I really had asthma, I'd have one of those puffer things, as he called it. By this time, the girls were on their hands and knees, Driver was behind Smith, fumbling with his zipper. Cockrell noticed that he put the bat down and saw her chance. She scrambled for it, shaking. She said, I had so many thoughts running through my head. At first, I thought maybe he'll just rape us and let us go. Then I thought, what if he has a disease? What if he has HIV or AIDS? We're dead anyway. So I hit him. I looked out and I remember I saw my high school through the bushes and thought, great, this is the last thing I'm going to see before I die. At that point, I don't know if I was more upset about the fact that I was going to die or the fact that the, 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 fact that the last thing I would see was my high school, a place I hated. Cockrell added, driver hoisted the bat and swung. Cockrell said she felt seven blows to her head before she passed out. She awoke hours later on the other side of the parking lot, cold and tired. As she stood up, she felt a rush of hot liquid steaming from her ear. She would later learn it was a mixture of blood and spinal fluid. Dazed, she staggered across the parking lot and into the hospital. As she entered the emergency room, the triage nurse caught, caught sight of her and began to scream. I thought, man, whoever came in behind me must be in really rough shape, she said. As she leaned on the wall that separated the nurse's station from the waiting area, she turned to the window and was shocked to see her own bloody reflection. She passed out again. When she awoke and asked where her friend was, the doctors told her Tanya was on another floor of the hospital. Four days into her recovery, her family revealed that Smith hadn't survived the attack. Oh my God, that's heartbreaking. Thinking that your friend is alive and well and 
in a safe place, but she's actually drowned in the river. That's so sad. After Cockrell blacked out, driver raped and beat Smith and dumped the girl's body in the river. Cockrell underwent surgery to repair the damage she sustained from the attack, but still suffers from after effects of her brain injury. What followed was a seven-month siege of torment as driver terrorized the Fraser Valley community. Cockrell and her family were placed into the Witness Protection Program. Driver boldly attended Smith's funeral with his two preschool children and later stole the headstone from her grave, which we will talk about in a little bit. So we're going to talk about Tanya for a minute and just um, remember Tanya. So Tanya was 16 at the time of her death, the much-loved daughter of Terry and Gail Smith. Tanya and her high school friend Misty were walking to a party when they were both attacked and beaten. Sadly, Tanya did not survive, but her friend Misty did. Misty eventually had a daughter of her own who she named Tanya in memory of her dear friend. That's beautiful. And I don't know if I would be strong enough to do that because I feel like every time I would call her name, it would remind me of that night. Um, yeah. After the attack, driver engaged in a course of bizarre behavior that eventually led to his arrest. Driver made a series of phone calls to police and emergency services in which he refused to give his name but made sure to identify himself as the killer and even threatened to do more crimes. Driver said in one of the police calls, I'm the killer. Her right nipple tasted so good. Ugh. Fucking gross. Just gross. You know what I mean? Like, come on. You're fucking disgusting. This piece of information was not made to the public that the killer had bitten Tanya on the right breast and left bite marks. They knew this had to be Tanya's killer. In another call, driver said to police, you guys did a real thorough job, but do you think I would be stupid enough to leave a fingerprint behind? What a fucking asshole. About 20 minutes later, he called again saying... Are you having trouble finding the killer? The dispatcher asked, did you want to provide information to the police? And driver replied, no, I'm the one. I'm giving you a chance to try and find me. I'll be cruising around looking for someone else. Like, this guy is crazy. Also, fun fact, 
his father was a police officer. So, uh, it's just crazy what comes out of this world. So, Driver was known to have an obsession with scanners, and he used one to monitor police responses to his telephone calls. So, he would make a phone call and then listen to them scrambling on the other side, and he must have liked it, or else he wouldn't have done it. He even had the balls to attend the funeral of Tanya Smith and take his children. About four months later, he stole her tombstone and wrote threatening messages on it that said she was not the first and she won't be the last. And I'm still looking. You won't find me. And one day, Misty. There was a circle on Tanya's picture and ink around her chest with an arrow and the words yummy tit on it. You guys, I can't. I can't. This guy is so fucked up in the head. It's scary. It's fucking disgusting. He went, stole her tombstone after he's the one that killed her. And like, oh my God. And writes on it. I would be so fucking mad. I would haunt him. I would haunt him. He then put the tombstone on the hood of a car that belonged to a radio station. He also threw a wrench with a note to police through a stranger's front window. The note mentioned three other similar assaults for which he wanted credit for, one of which was a 12-year-old girl that he groped but managed to get away from. Inside the note contained clippings from Vancouver's son on the unsolved murders of three women, and all three women tragically were all stabbed to death. He had left a thumbprint on some tape around the package, and he had left DNA on the body. Police arranged for the broadcasting of recordings of telephone calls that they received, and Driver's brother recognized his voice, and his mother concurred in the identification. Police determined that it was indeed Driver's, thumb, driver's thumbprint on the tape, and he was arrested in 1996. His family can recall an argument they had with Terry about two weeks after Tanya's funeral where Driver said, don't fuck with me. You don't know me anymore and you don't know what I'm capable of doing anymore. Which they had no idea. Apparently. The family received $10,000 for turning him in. Driver's brother Don said he believes his brother was wrongfully convicted of being the killer but he offered his best wishes for the victims and their families. He said, I hope Misty and her family and Tanya's family can get on with their lives. I just want to thank both families for giving us enough credit for being here. I wish the best for Misty for the rest of her life and hope nothing else but good comes to her. Terry was 31 at the time, a married father of two, and one time a Boy Scout leader and son of a decorated former Vancouver police sergeant. And now he is known as a murderer. After his arrest in May 1996, Driver denied that he had beaten the two girls. <laughs> this gets more messed up, you guys. So he claims he just happened upon them after the crime. And then raped Tanya while she was unconscious and then threw her in the river. He claimed that he had driven Misty to the hospital. So 
like Misty is going to fucking sit there and watch her friend get raped and then get in the car with a guy and then be like, oh, hey, can you take me to the hospital? And him be like, okay, I fucking doubt it. At trial, he did not raise an insanity defense, but he claims he had obsessive compulsive disorder and attention deficit disorder and urged these impairments to be considered to explain his actions. Fuck you. Okay, that's all I got to say. I, the insanity thing is very confusing to me. Because even though you're insane, you should still get convicted. Like you, I don't understand it. I get it. You're fucked up. Obviously, you're killing people and raping them. Okay? But you still need to do the time for what you do. There should be consequences. Our system sucks. He used this argument to explain that the confessions he gave were false and the product of his disorders. Because of the emotion, emotional response that the trial would bring, Driver elected to be tried in front of a judge instead of a jury. The judge was disgusted by Driver. <clears throat> Sorry, you guys. Disgusted by Driver, and he was convicted in 1997 for first-degree murder of Tanya and attempted murder of Misty. He was also declared a dangerous offender, was charged with sexual assault, causing bodily harm, aggravated assault, and robbery. Judge Opal remarked, I simply cannot find the words to describe your horrible crimes. You murdered Tanya Smith for your own sexual gratification, and you almost killed Misty Cockrell. They did nothing to provoke you. So he was sentenced. Um, he... <clears throat> he appealed, but in 2001 lost. In a later trial in January 2000, Driver was convicted of two more... Of uh, two more assaults that he mentioned in the letter that he threw through... Through, through, <laughs> that's funny, the window that happened in September 1994. So in those incidences, he punched a mentally ill woman living in a group home in the face and dragged her by her legs to a secluded area. The victim fought back and was able to get away. Thank the Lord. The second assault was in August 1995 when he hit a woman over the head with a baseball bat and stole her purse and left her on the sidewalk unconscious, which left her with a fractured skull causing permanent brain damage. In February 2001, an assessment determined that Driver is a very high risk for violence. Obviously. Like, do these people go back and, like, look at why they're in prison or jail? Like, I don't understand. It's so fucking stupid. Obviously, you're a high risk for violence. That's like letting... Okay, you guys. I was watching the news the other day and a child molester was out and living just like a normal life. Like, who gives you the right to go and move into a very nice part of the city... And just live your fucking life after you have ruined so many. I don't get it. It's not fair. 
It shouldn't be like that. I should be a fucking lawyer, you guys, because I would fucking tear shit up. Sorry. I'm getting mad again. But, like, I just don't get it. Like, you're... These... The court system is in the highest position to put these people away, and they still are fucking up. In my opinion, you guys are fucking up. Because you're allowing these people who have done horrific things to other people, and not just, like, older adults. Children. Children. Like, my children. Like, not, like, literally my children, but, like, my age of children, you know? It's crazy. If somebody did anything to one of my children, I would fucking murder somebody. And I'm not even kidding. And I would gladly go to jail for my children. Because ain't nobody else going to stand up for them, obviously, if you're letting people out. It's ridiculous. The board remains ever mindful of the nature and gravity of his offenses and the significance of the harm and actions he has done. And they were life-altering and have caused serious harm, obviously. In 2006, Driver was transferred from protective custody at Kent institution to a treatment center in Abbotsford. Thankfully, Driver died in prison at Mountain Institute, a medium security federal penitentiary in BC on Monday, August 2001. Of They say natural causes, but I looked it up and I guess he had cancer. So yeah, so that's what I found on Terry Driver. Um, I had no idea that this man even existed. So I'm thankful to my sister for showing me this case. It's, um, yeah, it's just another one that I can get mad about. So thanks, Selena. That's, <laughs> you're helping me out here. Um, but yeah, if anybody has, I couldn't find really anything on Terry Driver about his early life, like, like, what he was like as a teenager or anything like that. Um, I tried and I just couldn't find anything. But if you can find something, then I would love to see it because I would like to know more. If you guys have any cases you want to hear, please reach out to me. I would love to research them and do them. And don't forget to check out my website, crimezillapodcast.ca, and look me up on Facebook at Crimezilla Podcast. Thanks, guys. Bye.